Hi, and welcome to Brothers Without Banners. I'm Dan, and I'm here with my brother Michael to help lead him through his first time reading A Song of Ice and Fire. The only spoilers beyond the chapters we discuss today will come from Michael's vague memories of the first three seasons of Game of Thrones, the TV show, from a decade ago. Today we're discussing Tyrion 2, Catelyn 2, and Sansa 1 of A Game of Thrones. Hey, Michael. Hey, Dan. How are you doing? You know, I'm doing pretty, pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. It's beautiful weather out, so I'm always excited. Better than uh, Joffrey, I hope. Yeah, that guy sucks. <laughs> uh, everything about my life's better than Joffrey right now, except for yeah. you know being rich and a prince. Yeah, um, that part's rough. I'm excited. I'm excited as always to get into this with you. We uh, we covered three chapters since our our last conversation. Yes, uh, we did. What was it? Tyrion two, I think. Yes. We did Catelyn two, two. I yes. think. And then we did Sansa 1. Yeah, we're in her head for the first time. In Sansa's head. Get out of here, Sansa. We're in your head. You know, I haven't looked this up, and uh, people can yell at me in the comments if they want to, if I am wrong, but I'm pretty sure this is our last new point of view for Game of Thrones. So I think we have the full universe of people now. Spoiler alert. Oh, well, I can't wait to see the comments saying how dumb you are, because Theon uh, Greyjoy showed... No, I'm just kidding. I have no idea. Okay. Um, <laughs> But just as a, a quick, quick recap of sort of everything that's been going on so far, we have the king and his retinue, including Ned Stark and all his people now moving down to King's Landing. We have yes. everybody has sort of moved out of Winterfell towards their direction. Bran is holed up sick because he's been shoved out yes, a window. He's by still in a coma. That's right. And then uh and then John has started going up north with Benjen into the night. Well, he's about to. That's they're on the path. And and so uh, we really have what has been so far a congregation of characters now dividing back up to go back to their relative lands to where they need to be. Yes. And with that, we find Tyrion, too, uh, is where we start. Uh, Tyrion, we now get the perspective of Tyrion. Tyrion has decided to go from Winterfell up north to the Wall. Yes. He has made a comment already that he's interested in seeing what's there, as well as I think there might be books there that he is interested in trying to see as well. Books, the wall, and pissing off the edge of the end of the world. I mean, we've all wanted to. Yeah, it's, you know, it's a fair statement. I get it. Um, but with this said, the, it, we have Tyrion going with this party, and we have this sort of inner monologue of his about... Uh, you know, not wanting to seem weak, but still dealing with the harshness of the weather as yes. they're going. Yes. Uh, raw thighs, I think, is what he refers to. Yeah, we get a lot about how uncomfortable he is and also how uncomfortable the landscape is. And the first part of this chapter here is so descriptive of the part of the north that they're riding through from farmland and then into dense wood, which they call the wolf's wood, and then into the mountains. And then as on their way, we actually get this wonderful moment where they actually pick up a few more people to join their party. Yes. A character named Yorin, as well as yes. I think three uh, captive boys who are now have decided they were, uh, I forget what they had done. They but, were rapers. Uh, they were rapers, but in, rather than get castrated, they decided to go to the wall. And with yes. this, we have Tyrion seeing and witnessing the uh, displeasure in Jon Snow's face. And this comes up a little bit later in the chapter, and we'll get there. But, you know, Tyrion is noticing very quickly that Jon had some admirable thoughts about what the Night's Watch was and is now realizing that it might really be made up of uh, some some smellier, worser type folk than the heroes he might want it to be. Yeah. So, yeah, we, we've gotten a lot 
And we've talked before about John and John's impression and Benjamin's description of the Night's Watch as contrasted with the Night's Watch that we met in the first chapter, uh, or rather in the prologue. And I think this is the beginning of John starting to realize where that dissonance lies, which is really interesting. You know, Yorin gets there and he is a recruiter for the Night's Watch. It seems that this is his job is to go south and find new men. And the new men that he has found on this trip are criminals. And that is not what John was thinking of when he talked about the honor of being in the Night's Watch and of serving as a brother of the Night's Watch. And then Yorin himself, even, we don't know his backstory or what led him to join the Watch. It's possible he was a criminal himself, but he is described described as smelly and dirty and I think covered he's with lice sour smelling which sounds horrible <laughs> um but Tyrion does see through that which I think is interesting he describes Yorin as tough as an old root and hard as stone so there's mm. this this dank covering to Yorin that seems to mask something a little more interesting underneath and this, I think, speaks to some themes that we've already talked about as well which is you know the the sort of relationship and difference between what the stories are of a situation versus the reality. The reality of the Night's Watch, whether we like it or not, is that it is up in the cold. It does take a certain yeah. type of countenance to, to kind of deal with the things that they're tasked to deal with. The stories might be a little more heroic and, you know, show some cleaner right. type folk, but, you know, you you have to give credit to where credit's due. Not everybody can do the type of work that this Night's Watch are being basically required to do. Yeah, there's not a lot of pleasure to being on the front lines of a war, and this isn't even a hot war that gives a lot of the glory that goes along with it, but a very cold war, both literally and uh, metaphorically. As they're going, a lot of this is just commentary. As they are moving up north, a lot of this is commentary, just internally Tyrion, you know, thoughts as he's going. He does make uh, some comments about Benjen and Benjen's attitude towards Lannisters, yes. uh, mostly pointing out that Benjen seems to share his brother's distaste for Lannisters and uh, and really wasn't pleased to see that Tyrion was coming. Um, yes. I also liked that uh, that Tyrion made an interesting comment that I really enjoyed as well, which is that when when Benjen offered sort of like out of the, the right way thing to do as a Night's Watchman offered, you know, a comfortable skin to put on the, the saddle. Uh, didn't expect Tyrion to take it, but Tyrion definitely took it. Yes. And the comment that he makes is, the Lannisters never declined graciously or otherwise. The Lannisters took what was offered. Yeah. Uh, which I just think speaks to, to the family, if you will. It definitely speaks to the family, and it also speaks a lot to Tyrion. You know, Tyrion is a dwarf, and, and Tyrion is existing in a world as we talk more about later that is not particularly kind to them and so this is not somebody who's going to turn down kindness when it's offered even when it's offered with the assumption that it will be turned down that, that would be the polite approach i also like in this stretch of chapter we get a moment we're getting some back and forth here for Tyrion between him listening to the advice he gave John in the first chapter of internalize the thing that makes you different and make it part of yourself mm -hmm. and reacting negatively to it. So last Tyrion chapter, we saw him really take offense and get annoyed at the jokes that were being made at his expense. And here we have him making a joke at his own expense, uh, where Benjamin says, you know, there are no inns at the wall. You're not going to have somewhere to stay. And Tyrion says, well, I'm, I'm, I'm small. I'm small. <laughs> find me somewhere. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, uh, he he's sometimes listening to himself and sometimes not. And I think it's interesting to see that kind of difficulty, which I think is very human. Of Sometimes it gets to you and sometimes you're able to laugh at yourself. Yeah, and I like that. And I think that Tyrion has already, just in the little bit that we've gotten to meet him from the previous chapters, from other people's perspectives in his own and now here again. But uh, 
let, uh, just to reemphasize what you're saying, he's human and it shows, it shows through his reactions and to different things. And I'm really enjoying that. Yeah. I am excited though, because as they're traveling up North, they pause, they're pausing all the time to, to camp as they're making their way, uh, towards, towards, uh, towards the wall. And Tyrion starts to geek out about dragons, yes. uh, which I just thought was so delightful and delightful in a lot of different ways. One is Tyrion brings this child, this childish wonder to the forefront, which as a reader, I just really share dragons. Yeah. How fun, even though they and are he's considered reading a textbook on it too, which exactly. makes it even funnier. This is, this is a kid who is, I mean, he's an adult now, but he's engaging his childlike wonder where he's so excited to just learn about this. I, uh, I especially enjoy in, in, that not only is he excited about it, but that these just because they are occurring or used to be occurring uh, in this world doesn't make them uninteresting. They are right. not, you know, the fantasy unicorns as as you and I might think about fantasy creatures that don't exist for us, but much more the dinosaurs of very recent history right. that are just fun to really engage with. Yeah, that's a fun thing to think about. We get a lot of fantasy books where it's part of the world building. And so this is something that the characters are used to. It's just exactly. around them. Yeah. And here the mystical aspects of Game of Thrones are a little bit removed. They're a little bit foreign. And so things like dragons can remain super cool, which I think is right. Dragons should always be cool. There's a part where uh, Tyrion is actually, he's curled up in his fur with this book and his, you know, his, uh, what's it called? His I forget what they're called, bladder of wine. Uh, but he's curled up. I think they might actually say that. Yeah. Comfortable. Uh, but he quotes from the book, and I just thought that was fun. It's just talking about what, you know, dragons and the value of dragons and what they yes. provide. But all of a sudden, we get a familiar uh, type of people is brought up, which is the Darth Rocky show up. Yes. Uh, you know, which I just thought was so interesting to see. Here is this culture of people listed as treasuring. In this case, they're just brought up as really, they, they love dragon's bone for their bows. It's a very, yes. it's a great material. But how fun to see them show up here as they are now in the present with the dragonborn, you know, family and bringing oh, that's that in. Uh, and, and I don't know, there, I don't think there's any importance to this as much as it's just cool to see that, oh, maybe the Dothraki are excited to have a dragonborn in their uh you know in their family now because of their how much they enjoy they enjoy the the functionality and the tools of what dragons can provide yeah so just to add on to that i think it's fun because we saw in daenerys's last chapter which we talked about last episode some of the gifts that she got that we actually skimmed over were from Khal drogo's blood riders and they gave her weapons that she said i can't use and then pass along to Khal drogo, drogo himself yeah and I don't know if you picked up on this, but one of those weapons, a double curved dragon bone bow taller than she was. Oh, so that's a no. really nice emphasis of how valuable this is to the Dothraki and how you know, they're giving her something really nice and really expensive. As Tyrion continues to read this book and continues to think about and share his passion and thoughts about dragons, he actually also talks about uh, when they came to take over the castle now, not the war part, but now the war's over and now they're filling it, uh, that Robert Baratheon, King Robert Baratheon, has, had removed all the dragon skulls that were on display by the Targaryen king uh, before, but that that Tyrion really took time to go find them and, in fact, was incredibly impressed by them. We also get a sense of their diminishment over time. Yeah, Tyrion... before we get to the diminishment, oh, sure. I wanted to ask you if you had any thoughts. So we get here, 
King Robert takes over and he takes down all of the dragon skulls, but he doesn't get rid of them and he doesn't destroy them. He puts them away. Anything for you there? Any predictions what that's telling us? Do we have any thoughts on what that means for Danny's arc? Is this some heavy-handed foreshadowing? You know, that's that's interesting. The only thought that I had about it is, yeah, I don't like like my reaction at the time when I was reading was, yeah, I can like like King Robert Baratheon is not someone I think who would waste his time wondering where did these go? Well, he's like, stewards, okay. take these That's away. <laughs> and then they say, well, I guess we'll just put them in the closet. Uh, these yeah. are valuable things. You know, do we just destroy them? Um, much more than I was thinking about any type of foreshadowing with that was really just this, like what I was, what I was saying, that diminishment. We're seeing this de-evolution of dragons from the very old, uh, you know, the very old, you know, enormous skulls that you could ride a horse into their mouth down right. to the more recent ones, which are much smaller and much more benign. Yeah, it says no bigger than mastiff skulls. So these mm. are the size of, of large dogs by the end here. So what did, what did you think about this? We hear now, we get confirmation. It was referenced in Danny's wedding, but we got confirmation here. There are no more dragons. And we have this very clear fossilized record archaeological record if you will of the dragons dwindling in size over the years mm -hmm. do you have any thoughts about what that means for the world why that was happening was that uh nutrition was that something <laughs> magical I, I mean we don't have any information here but i'm curious if you took anything away from it no i think really the thought in my mind was much more along the lines of like humans being shit species like like uh as we grow and populate and domestic right. with these sort of you know larger animals that are out there they become much more domesticated and much less uh oh, enormous if you will uh, i was thinking it in the sense of you were saying in the sense of like extinction as humans spread and proliferate that we kind of invade on these native species spaces and knock them out of existence but uh, yeah but going further included, and saying, yeah yeah i think that's a great idea that the more humans tamed the dragons the less powerful they were able to be is an, a very interesting thought so we'll keep that in mind and see if we see any of that in the future but I'm going to jump in here because I think this next section is right up my mm -hmm. alley. Because yeah. in thinking about the dragon skulls, we learn a little bit about Egon's conquest for the first time. We heard his name a bunch of times as the uh, head of the Targaryen dynasty. Um, but we learn about how he became the head. This is really the first in-depth reference to that that we get. And we get it because Tyrion thinks about the biggest three dragons in the crypts, Balerion, Balerion Meraxes, and Vagar. All three were named after Valyrian gods. So we've heard about that from Valyria, which is where the Targaryens, of course, are from. And they were written by Aegon and his two sisters. And we know from prior chapters that Aegon was married to his sisters. So we have mm -hmm. a sister-wife situation. The three of them were riding these three big dragons and used them to great effect in taking over the Seven Kingdoms. So Tyrion thinks specifically on his ancestor, King Lorin of the Rock. Uh, and of course, we know that the Lannister's seat is Casterly Rock. That's so right. this is the king of the Westerlands before it became the lord that was the head of the Westerlands. And he allied together with King Myrne of the Reach and put more than 50,000 men on the field to fight against Aegon. And everything went really badly when the three dragons showed up. And so bad it has been termed by the singers and, and the historians the field of fire. Uh, King Myrne and thousands of men died. But Tyrion thankfully thinks that King Lorne escaped 
pledged fealty to King Aegon, which is how the Lannisters and the Westerlands are now part of the Seven Kingdoms, and continued his line, which has now given us the modern-day Lannisters. It's not lost on me, and, and that that this was, I think they say, the only time that three dragons came together, you know, on yes. the battlefield. It's not lost on me that Daenerys got three eggs. It's not lost on me that I watched enough of the TV show to see the three eggs come to some types of fruition. Three well, dragons... See. We'll see. We uh, don't know how how or if that's going to happen, or if she's going to get to use them at any point. That's a long it, way off. So. Exactly. Yeah, but it's just it wasn't lost on me that there are a lot of parallels being made between what we're reading here in this part of the book and what I do know happens, you know, vaguely in the future. So I just thought right. that was interesting to start to see. You also have to wonder if maybe these three dragons weren't used together again because they didn't have to be. That's something mm. to keep in mind as a potential curiosity. You sort have of this. A this extraordinary weapon and you choose not to use it at its full strength you have to wonder if maybe there was some deterrent effect yeah some deterrence here some weapons of mass destruction if you will yes as Tyrion is reading his book on dragons and reminiscing and thinking through the history and where dragons have come up in history and how it's very directly connected to his family line and has led to where things are today for them in a certain extent Jon Snow comes uh, Tyrion has been kind of curled up in his corner. He's actually there because he's too small to be too helpful setting up camp. But now yes. John has kind of come and find, found him. And they, again, have a sort of very honest type of conversation, similar to their first conversation that we got to see them have. In uh, some ways. In some ways, yes. Mm -hmm. Did you want to say more on that? No, I'll get to it. Okay, great. Um, but so they come together, and John is basically saying, why, why are you reading? And, and I think Tyrion speaks to something that you and I have talked about before, which is, why does Tyrion get to do what he does? He slapped right. Prince Joffrey before. He, you know, he clearly feels very comfortable in a position of, of need. And what he goes and says is, he says, my, my mind is my weapon. And reading is what wets the blade of this weapon. You know, this, I don't have what others have. And in yeah. fact, he goes on to say something that we even talked about in, in a predictive type of way, or not predictive, but insightful type of way, one or two episodes ago, which is if he had not been born as a Lannister, there's a good chance that he would not have been allowed to live. Yeah, you said that. And I, that was you before you even got to this point. You predicted that, and uh, there's at least mythology surrounding that type of mm -hmm. approach. I'm not sure if it's historically accurate, but this idea of leaving the disabled and uh, you know these dwarfs or these uh, people with various conditions out to fend on their own, which inevitably ends in death from medieval history and from the time frame that this is sort of loosely meant to be in. And so it's interesting to see Tyrion say that out loud. Yeah. Oedipus Rex, the story of uh, Sophocles, I think. But, yes. but like the whole, while Oedipus himself is a strong baby and is thrown to the rocks because of a, a oracle prediction, right. uh, that type of throwing babies on the rocks was often saved for babies with deformities that were not expected yeah. to survive. And, and so I think there is a sort of historical context to that type of action. I, I like the way he says it too. This is another joke that he makes at his own expense. Had I been born a peasant, they might have left me out to die or sold me to some slaver's grotesquerie. But alas, I was born a Lannister and the grotesqueries are all the poorer for it. Mm. As they continue to talk, uh, I actually really enjoyed this just from a tonal perspective, but I loved Tyrion's almost affectionate way of sharing his love of dragons with this, this child, Jon yes. Snow. Uh, and, and, I think it's almost done in a in a very 
fraternal way of saying, you know, he's noticing, Tyrion's noticing the sort of disappointment on Jon's face about where he's going. Tyrion has sort of a more clear sense of what this is about to be for Jon. And he's saying, let me share, let me share a little bit of this sort of dragon wonder with you. I don't know about that because we're, we'll get to it in a moment, but this is where I was saying that this isn't quite the same as the last one because he really takes a dagger to Jon Snow. He saw Jon Snow was feeling bad about it and he frames it as sharing hard truths, but he's a dick in this conversation. He really goes out of his way to make sure Jon Snow yeah. knows and feels bad. Yeah, but then he feels bad for making Jon Snow feel bad. And well, in fact, he, he thinks he does. So let's let's break this down. So we first have this conversation uh, where Tyrion shares why he reads so much. He emphasizes his family's importance in the realm, which I thought was interesting. Tywin was Aerys's hand, King Aerys's hand for 20 years, we learn, which is a very long time. Jamie then killed the king, and then his sister married the new king. I actually want to jump in for just a second. Yeah, go for it. I was, I continue to be shocked at the revelations of the Lannisters' relationship to the Targaryens. Yeah. I, I did not realize that not, this isn't even deeply historical at this point. Tyrion's father, Tywin, who we haven't met yet, yeah. but keeps being brought up. This was not just somebody who had, you know, said that they're on the side of the Targaryens. This was the hand of yes. the king. And that gives a lot of insight into why Eris would open the gates when he gets there. Yes. This is a guy that, if not at that moment, certainly sometime in very recent history, was King Eris's closest ally in the country. And, you know, we don't know what happened there or how that ended. And certainly we don't know what led the Lannisters to ultimately flip. We get some indications that that was self-preservation. Mm -hmm. But it does seem from Ned's perspective, he felt the Lannisters joined too late, which means it seemed he expected the Lannisters would be on their side. So it's very curious to hear about that after this very tight, close alliance that they had up until yeah. some breaking point. No, I like that. It's, it's definitely i'm curious i'm starting to get more and more curious at the depths of the relationship of lannisters to targaryens just i mean i, I don't know if you can get deeper hand of the freaking king like yeah. king's guard the, this yes. is they should have gone down with that ship if they had honor is my is my right. take you know? and if if the other side was willing to tie them to it you know there are allies uh, Robert talks about houses that sided with the Targaryens, who I have to imagine the ones he's thinking of are by and large not that influential in his court. Right. And yet here he is married to a Lannister, appointing Jamie Warden of the East, Tywin as Warden of the West. These are people that are, are fully intertwined in this regime and seem to have been fully intertwined in the regime that this regime displaced, which is a strange political situation to be in. It kind of speaks nicely back to that line we brought up earlier from this chapter. The Lannisters never declined, graciously or otherwise. There's almost a there's a very large opportunistic, you know, sort of tone there. That's great. Uh, yeah. Just interesting to see it. Yeah. So so after thinking through the importance of the family and why he needs to be smart to be able to involve himself in that uh, Tyrion has a brief moment of thought again on John having stark face and says, mm -hmm. whoever his mother had been, she had left little of herself and her son, which I think is an interesting observation because we know four of the kids are totally colored. Four of the six of Ned's kids look like Catelyn. Right. So, I mean, I'm not a biology person and I don't get the sense George R. R. Martin is either, but I mean, what's going on with the genetics here? How is it that 
John and Arya ended up so strongly Ned when the rest of the kids ended up so strongly the mothers? Well, honestly, my feelings reading it so far is this is what the author wants. <laughs> you know, okay, uh, much enough. more more than genetics at this point. I think it speaks a little bit towards the countenance and 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 uh, you know approach that the different characters are going to take and and who they're kind of mimicking a little. Yeah, I think you just mentioned Arya, you know, versus Sansa. And they're, you know, we've already seen such a huge disparity in in the way that they act and react to things, but uh, but I wasn't thinking about it any any much more than that. Yeah. Okay. So so take us away after those brief moments. We get into like you were saying, Tyrion sharing his love of dragons with John. Shares the love of dragons, but it then becomes like you were saying, a little bitter and a little acerbic. Uh, you know, Tyrion kind of almost really shoves what John's choices are in John's face. Yeah. Well, and you can't skip past the instigating incident for this conversation, the remark that kicks them off, because this feels pretty important to me. Tyrion tells John that he used to spend hours staring into the fire and fantasize about burning his father and sister. Hmm. This is pretty aggressive language. And in Tyrion 1, we got him making a remark uh, you know Jamie asks him whose side are you really on and he's he grins wolfishly and says you know how much I love my family and now in his very next chapter we get this indication that he wants to kill his family that he fantasized about it as a kid what's going on here what are Tyrion's motivations is and and what do you think is he going to act on this is Tyrion gonna murder Tywin and Cersei someday I'll be honest I I I found these feelings to be really normal uh, oh God! No, <laughs> I, not not that everyone wants to kill their family, but back to what it means to be a grotesque. Surely, right? definitely not me. I'm not trying yeah, to. Of course. No, but but going back to what it means to be in this time as a grotesque, as a dwarf, as someone who doesn't fit the right way of doing it. Tyrion is has done more than survived. He's obviously thrived. He's he's looked at as a player, you know, in this in this world of his family and the in the in the in the monarchy as it as it exists right now. But I can only imagine, you know, what types of difficulties he had to go through. I think he even mentioned in, in Tyrion one, I uh, you know, that Jamie was the only one that was nice to him. You know, right. to everyone else, he was a huge, you know, outsider and outcast and and and, and of course, Jamie himself. doesn't make this list. So right. And so I think that, you know, the 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 emotion of you know, those that, that we're closest to are always it, 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 this is a terrible way to say this, but like those that we're closest to are by virtue of being closest to us the worst. Uh they're the ones that that not that they are always the worst to us, but they have been around us the longest and have had the most opportunity to accrue the most negative points. Uh, and so I don't think it's rare for anyone to sort of look at, you know, to be in that mood or that perspective. And especially he's talking about his memories as a child, when I was a child lighting these fires and, you know, putting those that were against me in here, they happen to be family, but this felt like a really authentic comment Okay, uh, that I thought he was sharing much more than a uh, that he's murderously out for murderous revenge against his family or anything like that. I, I find so. This be... is more an expression of emotion than exactly. it is a, a prediction or anything like that. Okay. I will say though that this type of emotion and and what he's talking about, I do wonder that if for some reason life changes for him, that perhaps there's an opportunity for him to join a different incoming, you know, rebellious king. Uh, that he might be helpful to. I don't think he would hesitate 
to potentially do the Lannister thing and flop sides. And right. you know, I don't I don't know if there's much love That's lost funny. towards his Abandon father. Abandon the family ties, but live up to the family yeah, reputation. Exactly. Okay. But so if that's the sort of that instigating moment, uh, you know, as as it almost feels like Tyrion's sharing this intimate, like, sort of thought, and here is these feelings, uh, and he says, hey, right, you're similar, I'm sure, having, you know, I'm sure you think about throwing your father in as well. Uh, yeah, which, well, he starts specifically with Catelyn, which I think is quite mm. perceptive. I mean, who knows what he saw in the few weeks that he was at Winterfell. We certainly didn't see him observe any of that interaction. But starting off with the assumption, hey, the the woman that was not your mother, that your father cheated on to have you, probably doesn't like you very much. Well, he's a very smart man. Um <laughs> But John, John gets really defensive, and more than defensive, he gets emotional. Uh, he doesn't want this, whether it's because he's a Lannister or an outsider or a foreigner, or maybe it's just because John is emotional at everything that's happened over the past the recent weeks that he's now had to go through in this life-changing events. Uh, but he gets he gets really defensive, and yeah. this goes back to what I said before. Uh, suddenly, absurdly, Tyrion felt guilty. Yeah. Uh, so I think this is really notable, the word absurdly here. This is what really gets me. How does he not realize that he's being a dick? He's like, oh, I was telling hard truths. I, you know, it's it's like the people you meet who insist I'm uh people just don't like me because I'm blunt and I'm honest and I refuse to sugarcoat <laughs> things. Like, no, Tyrion, you're being mean. Like you saw this guy struggling with seeing what his brothers are going to be. And then how does he describe it? A midden heap for all the misfits of the realm, watching for grumpkins and snarks and all the other monsters your wet nurse warned you about. This is this guy is going to sign up the rest of his life to this institution. And what an incredibly dick thing to say to somebody who is already coming to this conclusion. Well, I don't know. Maybe I'm not understanding it, but I didn't find that absurdly was referring to that John shouldn't have been offended. I thought that it was absurdly because Tyrion Lannister shouldn't have to feel guilty about saying anything. That's what I thought too. Oh, and okay. I think that's so silly. How does Tyrion not how does Tyrion think it's absurd that he feels guilty right now? It's almost as though he doesn't realize how hurtful he was just being. He's like, wait, why do I feel guilty? This kid's just getting emotional for no reason. I think that I I kind of see it from almost an opposite perspective. That it's, you know, I make I I shit on people all the time with my words. I, yeah. I don't care about that ever, and I never feel guilty about it. How absurd that I feel guilty with it with this stark bastard. So this is actually a moment of growth for him. That's what I yeah, all I right. think that that's that, a that's a good reason. It's a growing bond between the two characters. It, right. or toward, of Tyrion towards John. I don't think John has any cares for Tyrion at all right now. Uh but you know, he, he's an interesting dwarf to John, I think much more than how it is for Tyrion saying, wow, here's someone who reflects as a bastard reflects my right. own like outsiderness. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. I like that. I also want to quickly mention in that quote I just gave, I think it's politically fascinating to hear Tyrion describe the wet nurse tales, the, the grumpkins and snarks with such disdain. Uh, I don't know what a grumpkin or a snark is. And I'm sure you don't either, but it sounds like something that is nothing and probably non-existent. But of course, we know that the wet nurse stories about what lies behind the wall are real and very serious. And Tyrion seems to be emblematic of the reason why the last line of defense against the others on the other side of the wall are rapers and debtors and peasants and bastards, as he says. Well, and I think that just speaks so well to what we were talking about earlier just a moment ago about dragons. You know, even for us, 
the reader, dragons are a fantasy creature. For them, the characters, they're a very real thing. Yet these characters still have other creatures that are fantasy creatures to them. And yet we know, even just from the dire wolf experience, let alone, you know, right. what is it, old Nan's, you know, stories. But we, and the fact that the others are there. And in fact, I don't mean to jump too far ahead because there's a few more things that I want to talk about. But in a moment, Benjamin will show up kind of a little concerned. I thought the others maybe got you, John. Now, is he kidding or not? But there is an understanding that there is Interesting. sort yeah. of fantasy threats that are real threats, be they fantasy or not. Yeah, I wonder about that because we had the Night's Watchmen in the prologue, not expecting this at all and not realizing they were real. And of course, mm-hmm. Benjen is part of that institution. So I feel like this is more a turn of phrase, you know, the... Interesting. The, okay, I could the see the night and the woods are scary, and there's a lot of dangers, and it could be wolves, it could be tripping and falling and breaking your own neck. But uh, I thought the others got you. You know, I thought something yeah. grabbed you. Interesting. Yeah, I could see that as well. But I will say that. So here we are, and Tyrion. There's suddenly... some. There's some. Sorry to interrupt. Oh, go ahead. There, but there's there is some dramatic irony, even if it's a turn of phrase, that Benjen is saying Fair. this without maybe yeah. without believing it. But we know what if the others got him. So here we have. Tyrion now suddenly and absurdly feels a little guilty, and he decides, you know what, I'm going to put a reassuring arm on Jon Snow and goes to do it. And then I is what what led me to my favorite phrase that I've come up with so far, wolf ex machina. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we get a few of those in these chapters. Don't yeah, uh, we really we really do. But uh, here is, you know, like basically you have machina. Tyrion, Tyrion goes to make a move towards Jon, which is supposed to be comforting, and Ghost comes out of nowhere, Jon's direwolf, uh, and does what he's been trained to do, which is protect his master, and he basically throws this tiny dwarf on the ground and pins him and is ready to take the next step. Yeah. And I think I think that it's an interesting, again, it's not lost on me that this is this chapter is Tyrion's perspective. But that said, I think it's a really interesting uh humbling and return to the fact of how small Tyrion is here he is he's telling the story he's thinking his own thoughts he's trying to he oh he feels guilty about this now his emotions are big he is a full human emotionally uh yet he has nothing he has no defense against the physical the physical threats that are out there yeah absolutely Uh, and he has to come back I mean, we don't get a description here, but at least it seems that the direwolves are still pretty young. You know, they will eventually be huge, but at this point they are uh, puppies, so probably closer to the size of dogs. I know that at this stage of the TV show, they were very much so still being played by real animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they were dogs. They were the size of dogs. They didn't need to CGI these giant beasts mm-hmm. yet. Um, and so this is this is Tyrion being taken down by a regular sized animal, which is right, very different, right. like you're saying. And then, honestly, I don't think there's too much more that I have about this chapter. They kind of get yeah. up and shake hands a little bit, and you know, John calls yeah. off the wolf, and I John think that... really settles down here and accepts what Tyrion's saying. So, from yeah. that perspective, I think Tyrion started off by being mean, but at the end of the day, this was something John was already beginning to realize, and Tyrion is being helpful, although he could have been nicer in how he went about it, in being the one to bring it to John's attention. And John says, you know, you're right. You're not lying to me, are you? And Tyrion says, you know, I respect it. Most men would rather deny a hard truth than face it. You are being strong in yeah. being willing to accept this fact. With that said, they, you know, like we just talked about, Benjen kind of comes and ends this scene. He finds John. They come back to camp. Uh, and then that's that's about it. We're reminded yeah. that Tyrion stays up late. And uh and that he, 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 the chapter really does end with these couple of lines of almost emotional 
you know, a more emotion again towards John. You know, yeah. there's John who pulled first watch. The boy stood near the fire, his face still and hard, looking deep into the flames. Tyrion Lannister smiled sadly and went to bed. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm 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 excited to see. I hope that this relationship grows. I hope that yeah. they become good friends. Yeah. Uh, it's nice that this ends also on you know John staring into the fire. Into like the fire. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of parallels here for sure. So that brings us to Catelyn too. We are back in Winterfell. We just left it, and here we are again. And it opens on Catelyn shockingly still being in Bran's sick room, uh, hanging out by his coma bed. And Lewin more than that, up. it shares with us too that that she really hasn't moved. Yeah, she uh, has. Much like last time we saw her, she has been sleeping and eating in there. This is this is a woman fully consumed by grief still, and we get such a taste of that early in this chapter. Uh, because we are in her head. This is our first time in her head since Bran fell. And we really get to experience that firsthand with her, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. So the the action in this chapter kicks off because Maester Lewin shows up and tries to get Catelyn to focus on some of her responsibilities as the lady of the house. Uh, he wants to talk to her about the cost of the royal visit. We need to revisit our numbers and figure out how much this cost us and what we have to do to make that up. Uh, and she says, let the steward handle it. And he says, well, we actually don't have a steward anymore. We're missing a right. bunch of our major appointments because Ned took those people south. He lists the steward, who we know is Veon Poole, Captain of the Guards, Jory Cassell, and the Master of Horse, who is a man named Hullen. They were all taken south by Ned, and we need to appoint those. And Catelyn really loses it here. My son lies here broken and dying, Lewin, and you wish to discuss a new master of horse? I would gladly butcher every horse in Winterfell with my own hands if it would open Bran's eyes. And this is the type of, of nonsensical uh, irrationality that comes from grief and these strong emotions. Appointing a master of horse will not wake Bran up. Not appointing a master of horse will not wake Bran up. But it will right. cause problems for the people who need horses. I think it's it, it it's a lot speaking to her sort of dereliction of duties, yes. uh, and we'll see more of that in just a moment as well. But clearly, like you're saying, racked with grief, but at the same time, like not someone needs to be running this house. Yeah. And so at that point, Rob shows up to say that he's handling that. We've seen some other That's people right. notice his growth recently. And here Rob says, you know, I'll take care of the appointments. Let's chat about it tomorrow, Lewin. Uh, but please leave. I need to talk to my mother. And Catelyn, despite her grief, like John in his last chapter, notices how much Rob has grown. Uh, she sees that he's wearing a sword now, which he hadn't been. In fact, we had seen him not even allowed to practice with a sword mm -hmm. in past chapters, but now he wears one all the time. And she says for the first time, she sees Ned in his face, something as stern and hard as the North. So we were just talking about how much he resembles her. Yeah, I was here gonna we say get it. him growing into this position, growing into the Lord of Winterfell. Yeah, and I was going to say, too, just going off of what we were just talking about a moment ago about, like, who looks like whom when it comes to the Starks and the family. But I do wonder if sometimes there might even be some projection of the viewer based on how the person's asking. Are they right. are acting? Are right. they acting more like Catelyn in this moment? Therefore, you, th those features stand out more. Are they acting more like Ned in this moment? Therefore, those features stand out more. So just an interesting way to be thinking about characteristics. Yeah, and it's interesting to hear her say that she sees Ned in his face. You know, maybe he's developing something of the Lord's face. He is coming into his own as a leader, mm. as a ruler, and that that is a trait she recognizes as like Ned, as opposed to like her. I like that. And 
he starts taking her to task for not doing the things she needs to be doing. And in response, she insists that she's taking care of Bran and that Bran needs her. And Rob says, no, Bran isn't going to die. The doctors say he's not going to die. But your other children need you. Rickon is three years old and everyone just left. You're the only person. You and me are the only people left to take care of this child. And he's following me around all day and crying. And I can't get the stuff done I need to do with him acting like this. And, you know, he says he needs her too. He's yeah. he's grown and he's doing his best, but he's still a kid out on his own for the first time. And, and Catelyn remembered he was only 14. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, we've discussed the ages, but I think for these purposes, it's helpful to see Rob as young and as a child. We have such a tendency to see a, a 17 or an 18 year old, like in the show sure. uh, as an adult. And so it's helpful to remember that he's not. And even still, I mean, just even if we do adjust the, the ages for more of a realistic sort of understanding, even an 18 year old all of a sudden left to run an entire household yes. who hasn't been doing that, that this was very abrupt, who was supposed to have his mother there to help guide, you know, this type of leadership, like, I would still need my mother. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm trying to say I still do these days. Yeah, right. Uh, and I also think it's interesting here, Catelyn has a brief thought that I like the turn of phrase, but also it, it immediately follows the conversation about Rickon, which I think is meant to make her look infantile almost, because mm. she thinks about how badly she wanted Ned to stay. She didn't want him to leave. He, she feels abandoned by him. And the quote is, he had no choice, he had told her, and then he left choosing. This is the same reaction as Rickon is having. <laughs> This is the same, I'm feeling abandoned in my time of need. She had just been telling Ned how he needs to go south. And right. Ned, I think correctly, although maybe a little coldly, determines that Bran falling and will ultimately be okay is not reason enough for him to stay behind in this situation. And here she is being uh, uh, petulant about that. In a very interesting way, and, and perhaps I'm overthinking it, but you know, there was a moment not long ago that we saw in the book where Catelyn almost took some of the blame of what happened to Bran on herself right. for praying for it, praying for Bran to stay behind. And now he is. And now again, Catelyn was the one who really forcefully encouraged Ned to go down to King's Landing. You know, there is there is mischief amok down there. You need to be there now more than ever. And now Bran has, has gotten injured. She doesn't want Ned to go. Right. Uh, but but he again is doing what she has per, like really asked him to do and so it's yeah. almost like she you know she has point. to deal with the fallout from her own desires uh which aren't necessarily going the way that, that she wanted them to go yeah and we're seeing her have a really hard time with that we just get this moment here where all of her emotion really comes to a head and she fully breaks down uh they hear the wolves start to howl outside rob opens the window he says bran should hear it it'll make him stronger and Catelyn loses her mind. Night after night, the howling and the cold wind and the gray empty castle, on and on they went, never changing, and her boy lying there broken. The sweetest of her children, the gentlest, Bran, who loved to laugh and climb and dreamt of knighthood, all gone now. She would never hear him laugh again. Make them stop. I can't stand it. Make them stop. Make them stop. Kill them all if you must. Just make them stop. And she says this to Rob as she falls onto the floor, screaming and crying. This is this is somebody who is reaching a breaking point after several weeks of not sleeping, of not eating, mm -hmm. and sitting beside her beloved child who has suffered this catastrophic injury and it's so interesting that this was presented to us unlike the last john chapter from within her own head you know what's what's interesting that that struck me as as we were as i was reading this and now as we're talking about it is you know catlin has been a character 
so far in this book uh who has shown a real commitment to faith uh and and religion yes. and and something that's interesting just away from this from the book in particular but just in general is that a lot of religions and faiths have a very uh dedicated procedure around death and right. a lot of the time it has to do with um giving the 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 grievers and mourners a uh like a, a time schedule this is a time oh, for you to yeah, do this part point. and now this part and now it's time for you whether it says it directly or not but these times are sort of meant in a way to bring people out a little bit you were given right. this moment now you need to move however this is not death that she's dealing with yet and in fact it's almost worse than death she isn't allowed to mourn and go through these sort of potential stages that exist in her type of faith or whatever it is she is stuck in this demonic limbo right Bran is not dead but he's dead to her in the moment you know he she she can't see it any other way she is refuses to leave because what if that's the moment that he dies uh and and I think that's just a, a paralysis that we're seeing like you're saying just here is the results of this paralysis over these yeah. weeks no motion allowed um that's a great point that's and, fascinating yeah yeah just can't so imagine like for myself <laughs> like, yeah. I can't imagine the horror. I can't imagine the horror of having you dealing with something like that. Death Absolutely. is always thought of as just the absolute worst thing that can happen. Yet at the same time, there's a finality to it that allows for motion forward. Whereas there's a lot of other scenarios which don't. And I think we're just yeah. seeing her have to suffer through that. It's a lot of inertia here for her, which yeah. is so debilitating. So at this point, Rob notices that it's not just the wolves howling. It's also all the dogs are barking. And that is a big red flag for him. He goes to the window and looks out the window and sees the library towers on fire. And, you know, Catelyn has a brief thought here, which is a callback, but it's not lost to me that we've spent the last several chapters, Tyrion chapters in particular, getting references to how great the Winterfell yeah. library is. And so this is a really heartbreaking moment, aside from the disaster of fire in general and the risk that that poses and the difficulties for the, the lords of the castle and for the rulers this is also just a loss of knowledge potentially that these are rare things that may not be found anywhere else and catlin has no reaction to it well i'll i'll add to just from a, a thematic you know sort of point of view personally i was gutted to find out that it was the library that was on fire yeah. I, I i love books and i think there's there's so much history that comes with them and the people that use them and all of that and we've heard such great uh superlatives about this library and what it is um but i'll i'll add also that there seems to be this uh, it's, it's such a strange way to say it but we are watching winterfell fall apart yeah the kings you know the the king came with his you know group of folks if you will uh and they basically arrived settled in and as they left they shredded what was there yeah. and i'm saying this very metaphorically much more of than course, realistically but i think that's so interesting but you have this this you know the family is no longer a solid family there everyone's been split up bran is fractured and broken the catlin can't get up the library's on fire at this point they this is a home that once everyone had, else is left yeah the soul of this place has been fractured and spread and i i do wonder you know the fire and, and we'll get a sense of where that fire came from in a moment but i wonder if the fire is just the beginning of a true collapse of this home right. uh of this area and space interesting yeah so i i really 
thought it was the nail in the coffin on this first half of Catelyn's chapter in terms of her mood of things, where she has no reaction to the fire. Her first response is, oh God, Bran. Yeah, save Bran. Anywhere. And then she hears that it's just the library tower, just the library tower, and says, all right, fine, whatever. And she sits down. Meanwhile, Rob is frantically running around. He's grabbing all the guards from the door. He's going to try and put out the fire and yep. save the castle. And she is just completely ignoring everything. And... As the guards and everybody leaves, a man shows up in the room, smelling like horses. He has a dagger on him, and Catelyn immediately realizes he's here to kill Bran. You shouldn't he, be here. Yeah, he keeps saying, you shouldn't be here. And he looks at her and says, it's a mercy he's dead already. We've Catelyn heard that goes, before, by the way. Yeah, well, uh, I have questions for you about Okay, that. yeah, keep going then. <laughs> so Catelyn goes to scream out the window to try and summon some guards. The man is faster than her and grabs her and goes to cut her throat. And she reaches up and grabs the blade of the dagger, which is such a visceral moment. You get this adrenaline and she grabs the blade with both hands, cutting into her down to the bone we learn. And she manages to pull it away from her neck, which really conjures up the image of the mother pulling a car off her child sort of mm. situation, that, that burst of strength that allows her to overcome him. And... They tussle a little bit more. He gets away from her, tosses her to the floor, and goes after Bran. And she sees a shape sneak into the room, and it is Wolf X Machina. Wolf X Machina! <laughs> and uh, Bran's wolf, who still does not have a name, comes in and takes the man down and very violently rips his throat out and then goes over to cuddle up with Bran on the bed. And this is where Lewin, Rob, and Roderick, who run back in, Roderick is just as a reminder, the uh, master at arms who was training them, they run back in and find her cackling, laughing on the ground with Bran still in bed normally and his bloody wolf hanging out next right. to him in the bed. And they take care of Catelyn. She is totally delirious at this point. They get her cleaned up, treat her wounds, and put her to sleep. Uh, Maester Lewin gives her milk of the poppy to help with pain, which I assume is some uh, liquid form of opium of some kind, just based on the name. Yep. And she then goes to sleep for four days. So that's really the close of the first half of this chapter. And I will say, too, that, you know, some, something that we quickly can assume from what's just happened and then we learn out in, in a more realistic way. But, I mean, the fire was set by this murderer, this assassin, to draw people away. Uh, but what I thought was interesting is is that Bran's dire wolf was not allowed in. And in fact, the guards that were on the door, you know, and that have been set up that before the fire, right? I can only assume we're there to, to also make sure, you know, follow orders. We're not letting the dire wolf in right now. Uh, and yet it's by virtue of the system breaking down that the, the savior was allowed to be there. Yeah. Uh, and I just thought that was interesting, you know, how this sort of recurring, again, kind of recurring theme that we're starting to see of, you know, people going through the motions that they're supposed to be going through only for those motions to not necessarily be what needs to be happening. That when those motions aren't allowed to happen, that more honest and 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 better, better results start to come out. So I just thought that was interesting to see here how lucky that those guards got pulled away, that the dog right. was allowed to come in. You know, who knows what else the assassin might have tried to do. Yeah, absolutely. So Catelyn wakes up four days later and is really broken out of her mm -hmm. debilitating grief spell here. She calls everybody to her while she's eating. And uh, Rob, Roderick, Theon Greyjoy, and Hallis Mullen, who is has been appointed the new captain of the guard, come to talk to her, specifically about the events of that night. 
Uh, nobody in the castle knows who the killer was. They've mounted an investigation and can't find anyone who is aware of it. And they do did discover, though, that he was hiding in the stables. He smelled like it. Yeah, it smelled like the stables when he got there. And they found where he was sleeping, uh, complete with 90 silver stags paid for the killing, which Catelyn appreciates that, you know, he was sent by somebody else. <laughs> Uh, she says, at least my, what is it, my son's life. Yeah, it's not cheap. <laughs> yeah. And so they all agree that he must have been left behind when the king left, which indicates to them that this was somebody in the king's party. But Catelyn reveals to them, which they had not realized yet, the assumption had been that this was an attack on her. Uh, but Catelyn says, no, he was here to kill Bran. It was very right. clear. He kept saying, I wasn't supposed to be here. And that's who he approached with the dagger as soon as he got away from me. Rob is shocked by this. He has no idea why anybody would want to kill Bran. And Catelyn mm -hmm. quizzes him. She says, you're going to be the leader. You need to start being able to figure things out like this on your own without your mother helping you. And he thinks about it and says, someone is afraid Bran might wake up, afraid of what he might say or do, afraid of something he knows. Uh, Catelyn says, yes, that's absolutely right. Uh, let's set some protection for Bran in case this happens again. And again, defers to Rob, allowing him to be the leader, uh, which was something that Ned had told her she needed to do. So I think it's interesting to see that being fulfilled, not as a dereliction of duty, but as more of a passing of the torch this time. Mm -hmm. And Rob sets up protection for Bran, which, as you just mentioned, specifically includes leaving the wolf in the room with him. This is going to be good for him. This is going to be healthy for him. And they have a bond. This wolf is protecting him. And, uh, and we should allow that to keep happening. And Catelyn is a big fan of this idea. 100% uh, approves of it, which is a total flip on what we saw from her earlier in the chapter and her frustration with the howling. At this point, I believe it's the cap new captain of the guard points out the weapon was also suspicious, or no, rather it was Maester Lewin inspected the weapon, uh, not just the attempt, it's an expensive weapon, it's Valyrian steel, which we know is, is this item, this uh, material that is passed down among the noble houses and has a dragon bone blade, which we just all learned all about being expensive last chapter. Mm -hmm. uh, this was somebody who was armed by somebody who wanted to take out Moran. So more so than just the 90 silver stags, we know that this was somebody who was paid and armed with the specific goal of taking out Bran. And so at this point, Catelyn puts two and two together from her prior knowledge of what was going on and from the letter from Lysa. And she says, everybody here needs to keep this fully secret. If it gets out, we are putting Ned and the other kids in severe danger down south. But I have intel that the Lannisters killed John Aaron. And I'm now realizing that Jamie did not go on the hunt the day that Bran fell. Maester Lewin agrees. He's always been a very good climber. It's doubtful he actually fell. Catelyn says, I don't think he felt, I think he was thrown by Jamie Lannister because he found something he wasn't supposed to find. And on that note, she says, I'm going to go to King's Landing. It has to be me. I have to go and investigate this and I have to go and warn Ned. Roderick insists on coming with her. She says, fine. And the two of them are going to set off and ride to White Harbor, which is the port city in the north. It's really the only city in the north. And they're going to take a ship from there to King's Landing and probably even beat Ned and the King's party to King's Landing itself. So we have this theory here, and I really want to emphasize that it is a theory, because as you just said a moment ago, we have heard other people say before, it's a mercy the kid is already dead. It's a mercy. And that wasn't something that Jamie said. I mean, it was. We got that from him, but we also got it from Joffrey, and we got it from Sander Clegane. So Catelyn's putting some interesting 
threads together here about Jamie not leaving. Obviously, we know that Bran, we know Bran was thrown from the tower by Jamie because he stumbled across something he shouldn't have seen. So she is dead on on that part. But do you think Jamie sent this person to kill Bran? Do you think Cersei sent him? Or do you think maybe it was somebody else in the King's party who arranged for this? It feels like a very aggressive move from people. I mean, I guess it's smart to do it after hmm. the party leaves to try and avoid suspicion in some way. But in other ways, I mean, they gave him an expensive dagger. They gave him a bunch of money. If the guy gets caught, you didn't cover your tracks all that well. What do you think? Yeah, so it, it's interesting because it makes me think of th there's a line that Catelyn says here uh, as she's giving these explanations to everybody and, and saying what the next step of the plan is, which is what she says is there's no limit to Lannister pride or Lannister ambition. And honestly, you know, I, it's interesting your question because there seems to be kind of a cabal of some of the Lannisters that are really just all interchangeable to me right now. Okay. Jamie and Cersei being the big ones here. And then to a certain extent, Tywin, uh, who we haven't met yet at all, but right. only has been referred to. But this kind of goes off of the fact that he was the king's hand at one point and things like that. But it, it seems like Lannisters are looking out for Lannisters. It It's not lost on me, or, or at least as far as I can tell right now, only Jamie and Cersei know Bran's, what Bran saw, uh, that right. the, the Bran is a threat. I and mean, so as far it, as we know, yeah. Fair. Yes. But, well, yeah, but I'll even take it one step further. They clearly didn't tell Tyrion, and they're not, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, the Tyrion, and they're definitely not telling Robert Baratheon. Right. Uh, but you it know, does seem like Tyrion put two and two together. Sure. That's 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 fair. The, the other thing that comes to mind, though, for me is what Jamie says and he, when he shoves Bran out the window, which is, you know, the things I do for love. Uh, Cersei seems to be the more politically sharp-minded person about like ambition and, and what needs to happen where you know was it Cersei that you know fired the gun was it Jamie who pulled the trigger you know on hiring this it's all the same to me to be honest but you think I, it was one of the two of them I feel like it has to be okay. you mentioning that Tyrion uh you know had suspicions maybe he acted in a political you know sort of aspect here it was like you know, let me hire this. Like, 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 but again, Sandor Clegane, like all of them, they're all in this bucket of people to me that are part are they're only true to themselves. They're only there for their own like Lannister needs. So I guess what you're saying is that whether or not Cersei or Jamie was the instigating person behind this plot, at a minimum, the goal of silencing Bran regarding them was the purpose. And so yeah. therefore they were they were the emanating force whether or not they set up the plan exactly okay I, I mean that's fair it just it is striking to me that this seems like a stupid plan <laughs> it seems like they left a lot of breadcrumbs for people to follow and you know we don't have a clear sense of anybody other than Tyrion in this way but nobody's really struck me as particularly unintelligent so far yeah but I will add just from like a quote-unquote strategic point of view here is there's this awkward balance that I'm sure whoever is the, you know, the 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 bank on this, right? Who's paying the assassin, who set right. this up. But there's there's this awkward balance between the per the hiring the person that you know who is well connected to you versus hiring the person that you don't know who cannot be directly connected to you. You know, mm -hmm. would would uh you know, would Catlin have the same type of reaction about, oh, I think that the, this is Lannister doing or whatever? 
if she hadn't gotten the note from her sister, you know? Right. Okay. And, and, and so I wonder, and they don't know that she did get the note. So that's it, exactly. So, so I do wonder if maybe, you know, if that, if that suspicion of Lannister's to begin with, wasn't there, you know, about just Lannister you know, betrayals already start starting, would this not be the next, you know, you know, thought to have. Yeah. Uh, so that, that, that was my thinking about it. Okay. That's fair enough. So yeah, so this plan to go to the capital is really the close of this chapter. I just want to briefly touch on two things before we move on. The first is that, you know, Catelyn's first half of this chapter and her prior chapters since Bran's fall were really built around this grief. And when she wakes up, she feels very ashamed about it. And that is her instigating action to start being better. And I think it's interesting reading this right after Tyrion's last chapter. Uh, this is complete nonsense under your very fair reading of Tyrion. But for me, this idea that Tyrion couldn't figure out why he was feeling bad about the way he treated Jon. Mm. And Catelyn very much so identifies, here's what I was doing wrong in abandoning my duty and abandoning Rob and Rickon and devoting myself full time to mourning over Bran, who isn't even dead. And... I think that contrast is is really fascinating because we think of shame so often as such a hostile emotion, and it really often is. It can really be debilitating and horrible, but it can also be such a learning tool in terms of how you interact with yourself and how you interact with others. And here we see Catelyn learning it that way, while in my opinion, we see Tyrion very much so not internalizing what it is he did to make John unhappy, and that mm. contrast between using it to take a step forward versus not. At the same time, you know, we see Catelyn reacting to Rob in particular. We see a lot of growth from him, but also a lot of childlike nature. And that really comes to the fore in this conversation where he fully flips the script on what it was they were talking about earlier. He says, Mom, I need you. I need you to leave Bran. Bran is going to be fine. And here she says, okay, you need me. You know the way you need me. You need me to go to the capital and warn dad. And he says, no, what about Bran? You have to stay here with Bran. And I think that's such a perfect, it's childish fear. It's he is a young kid looking at having to do these things by himself, which he's already been doing, but was hoping he was digging a hole out of that and would have some help. And now he's being confronted with the idea that he has to do it on his own again. Hmm. That's interesting. That it, it, it's That's actually really interesting because I actually felt almost a little bit the opposite. And this is more from a technical like 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 this is something that happens in books all the time that that to me always jars me a little bit and, and something that i have a hard time with which is that you have this character in this case catelyn who is lost in the throes of despair and debilitated by it and then all of a sudden an action happens she in this case she gets attacked she falls asleep she wakes up and now she is a different character completely she yeah. has now shifted more than 180 degrees she from where she is into it's not that she just reverted back to who she was before but in fact there's even more vigor uh in in this sort of pursuit of conspiracy of suspicion and you know what it means for her to go down to king's landing now and yeah. all of this that's for me like i'm excited at this new catlin it's always a little jarring to me to see that i think that rob's reaction is is almost similar to my reaction wait a second this doesn't seem right at all why would you be the one to do it the needs for you to be here are the same today as they were four days ago when we were talking in that room uh and so i'm excited for the character i'm excited to see like where things go it's it was a little jarring to me 
I, you know, that's, I get where you're coming from. My reaction here is that as far as instigating events, which we keep using as a phrase goes, but the instigating event for, for Catelyn to leave an assassination attempt on her son and by proxy on her is a pretty good reason. And, you know, Ned is so severely at risk. I do think there's a fair question to be asked of, is it necessary that she do this herself mm-hmm. as opposed to sending Roderick or sending uh, Hallis Mullen or somebody else? Could right. They carry the message. These are trusted advisors to Ned. They could probably do a better job going unnoticed in the capital than she can. Yeah. All of these things make a lot of sense to me. But in terms of the reaction of we need to go deal with this, we need to make sure Ned doesn't get caught up by trip wires he doesn't see makes perfect sense to me yeah and i get that i i guess like the big thing for me is that in a weird way catlin's fears when she was standing vigilantly by brand's bed have actually been proved right <laughs> you know yeah. not from she the, what she thought there. yeah not not from what she thought was the aggressor but from a different one but part of me thinks that there's like the this type of character or the character in this situation would say I will never lose this bed, but that's a whole different story. Do you know what I mean? Like, and I understand yeah. that she could have just lost it and become a crazy, you know, hold up woman, right? And so be it. But that's that's not this book, and I get that. But that was the only fair thing I to point. Out. Okay, reasonable. I had one last little nugget to briefly touch on that I Let's wanted hear. to get your thoughts on because in this conversation, there's a moment, like I mentioned, where Catelyn swears everybody to secrecy. She demands actual oaths from them, and everybody does. And Theon Greyjoy says, Lord Eddard is a second father to me. Mm-hmm. And then later adds, my house owes yours a great debt. We've talked in previous episodes. I mean, we know for sure he is a ward, but he is a hostage. He was taken to Winterfell following his father's failed rebellion. And he is being held there for good behavior. If his father rises up again, they will kill Theon. I mean, right. maybe Ned has gotten too close with Theon and that will be hard. And there will be emotional conflict to it. Uh, and certainly, I don't see Ned as raising a child under that constant threat. This isn't mm-hmm. something his character seems like he'd mention all the time. But nonetheless, this is a weird thing for Theon to say. Uh, Lord Eddard as a second father makes some sense. He's been here since he was a child. But what debt could his house possibly owe? I mean, they rose up in rebellion and then were forcibly put down by the Starks. Did you have any thoughts here? You know, I had a couple sort of weird thoughts about it. Uh, I definitely noticed it when it was being said and what Theon was saying, and because of our conversations of what a ward is. That said, one of the first things that came to mind is Ned's affection for his warder. Uh, You know, how close he was to John Arian and how much of a father that was. I did my honest sort of like, like the thing that let me kind of like move through that statement from Theon and, and sort of accept it is this might just be the practicality of wardship right you know is like you know you do raise them as your own they are there as a hostage but they're not being treated as one theon seems much more comfortable than Jon snow you know just in his position there and things like that so so i i don't know i was able to kind of like go quickly with it i thought the 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 comment of you know my 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 family owes a great debt might be you guys didn't slaughter us you know when okay. you know like uh so i thought that might might be what it is and but but by extension i also thought maybe there's a little bit of twisting to some of the tales when you have your ward you know yeah. maybe the goal the goal is to smooth things out the goal is so that when the ward's father shows up with with you know an army saying give me back my son 
that that ward says, wait a second, why? This guy loves cool. me. I love or even him. better, when the father dies and Theon takes over as heir, now you have good relationships. Mm, that's a really fair. I like that, yeah. actually. So it just makes me wonder, and I want you to think about whether those tales and whether that experience of being raised alongside Ned's children will cause, or not cause, but it, whether there's any dissonance there between Theon and the remaining Greyjoys in terms of how they feel about the Starks. You know, like like he was taken and he was raised warmly and he sees Ned as a second father. And maybe for some people who haven't been in Winterfell for the last eight years, this is the guy that came in and, you know, tore down their castle and stole their son, right. uh, which would be a very interesting contrast. I like that, so actually. Yeah, yeah, that's all I got for, for this chapter. Well, that's great. Well, the next chapter is a a strong, a strong I don't know if this is a phrase. It's a strong jerk away from. Yes. I don't know if I love that. Uh, anyways, <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Nope. Uh, strongly jerk phrase. over the Sansa. Uh, we, uh, we, now, we now get inside. God. We're going to get deep inside Sansa's head. Uh, okay. You know, why don't I try this again? Uh, we, move away. Here? we moved away. We moved away. There you go. From the north. From Winterfell. We're now. Having now this intrigue that has happened in Winterfell, uh, we now move over to the party of the king and his entire party, including some of the Starks and Ned, Ned who's riding with the king up and ahead, uh, but in this travel party uh, to get into Sansa's point of view. And I'm going to say it right now, Sansa's boring. <laughs> uh, okay. That's going to cause some controversy, not because you're alone in this, but specifically because that is a very popular opinion, which has triggered equally popular backlash. Well, I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to say something that might be even more controversial. I, after reading this chapter, and I do want to go through this chapter, but since we're here now, after reading this chapter, I was starting to wonder if George R.R. Martin has a hard time writing for women specifically from a feminine perspective so Catelyn I I love as a character and is so fun to hear but she is not that sort of stereotypical woman in you know clean dresses she is a political powerhouse similar with Cersei so you know Arya is so much fun but Arya is a tomboy right here we have a proper lady or a woman a girl trying to be a proper lady she's just on, on almost a technical side, not that interesting yeah, to me. I love this. I love this as a starting point because I'll tell you right now, uh, it's not that the opinion you just shared is not held. And I've read things about it that I think are fair critiques on writing of women. But broadly speaking, George R. R. Martin gets a lot of credit. Granted, the baseline in fantasy is quite low. Sure. He gets a lot of credit <laughs> of writing complex fully formed, fully lived in female characters. And Sansa, in my opinion, is a great example of that. And so I want to say here, and we'll talk through this chapter, just keep in mind, we're in chapter one of yes. Sansa's head. Yes. We are starting from a baseline, and that baseline is going to change over time. And so keep an eye out for that. I'm not trying to push you to not have this opinion. I yep. think, like I said, it's a very fair opinion. But I will say, in direct response to what you were just talking about, one of the things that I find interesting about the women characters in this series, obviously speaking as a cis man, uh, is the complexity and the very different forms that femininity and womanhood takes in this series. Interesting. And you just started to list some of those aspects. We have Catelyn, who is very much so the mother. She is not 
as feminine as Sansa, but that is the thrust of her character archetype, in my opinion. You have Arya, who is almost the classical tomboy role of the, I don't want to be a woman, being a woman sucks. And I do think that gets more complicated and more complex as we move on. Mm -hmm. Um, We talked last time about how she's not strictly fitting, in my opinion, into the idea of, I don't want to be a woman, I want to be a man. Uh, You know, there's the internet joke of maybe it's, I don't want to be a woman, I want to be a secret third thing, uh, which I find very coded into her character of some gender fluidity and, and gender queerness there. And then now we have Sansa, who is the princess. She is the fairy tale princess. She that's is right. this archetype stereotype. And that's who we're meeting in this chapter. And so I get where you'd come from that this can feel flat. I think there are things to draw from this. But just keep in mind that this is a starting point. And that's fair. And I'll add to that I know my own biases. I'm not that interested in the story she's telling right now. This is a right. princess story, and I'm, it's not what I'm here for. Very so fair. With that said, it's also a princess story that's starting to show some fraying at the sides as we go through. So yes. what, I'm going to start start with this. Uh, we, we are on that trail with Sansa and sort of the king's party as they're going. It quickly says that Ned is has left early you know he's not here i think that's true with the king as well this is where right. they are we saw just a couple chapters yeah ago. i wonder when looking at that i mean it's a brief throwaway mention but it makes me wonder is this happening at the same time as ned's last chapter or is this something that robert is doing constantly the whole way through right uh and i guess actually now i'm going to correct myself we do get a geographical reference for where they are later on uh and in that ned chapter they were still in the north so it does seem like you know this is an everyday thing for robert or a yeah. regular thing where he wakes up and he goes out hanging out with his friend instead of stuck with the court and with from Sansa's perspective we learn a a few things really quick uh we learn that she's excited at an invitation to kind of spend the day with the queen and the queen's daughter and potentially get more time with Joffrey and I thought this was fun and interesting to kind of get a little bit of I don't I don't know if it's as large large enough to call it world building but just the style of life at that point they are betrothed. Sansa also points out that while they may be betrothed, it won't be a marriage for a long time, that there's a long right. time, you know, before they're of wed wedding age. Uh, but she, back to what how you would phrase it, which I like a lot, this sort of princess, you know, these rose-colored princess goggles. Yes. Uh, you know, how exciting. She talks about how beautiful Joffrey is, that he is the epitome of what a prince should He's look prince like. He's prince charming. Yeah, he's In- the blonde-haired blue eye I mean I assume blue eyed I don't know indeed well right green eyed yeah. uh but yeah he's the fairy tale prince and uh and then she's also kind of bringing up like like you know she she's not that excited about Arya being invo- invited Arya is yeah. not falling into the archetype that she needs her to fall into for this to work out the way that she wants it to she's the embarrassing little sister and you know we get these quick hits once again we don't get it as strongly as in Arya's chapter but we got from Arya's perspective the contrasts the direct contrast between her and Sansa and here we have them from Sansa's perspective once again very much so opposites this this part of the story starts with a conversation between uh, Sansa and Septim Mordain. And uh, and Septim Mordain says, make sure your sister's ready for what today in, in, in entails for her. And Sansa kind of says, okay, I'll, I'll go check on Arya, but Arya's going to do kind of whatever she does. Like Arya's Arya. Uh, and, and there's almost a, a bit of deflation that comes from Sansa with saying that she knows that there's not a lot to, like she's not going to be able to force Arya to anything. Right. And sure enough, that's what happens. She goes and says hi to Arya, and Arya says, I'm not going. I'm not going to go at all. In fact, I've been having a great time with the butcher's son, whose yeah. name I can't pronounce. Micah. I will call Mitchell. It's uh, Micah. Micah. It's just, it's spelled one letter different. This is a normal name. 
I don't know. I thought it was like a weird Miyaka, like a <laughs> Russian pronunciation or something. You can say it however you want. Uh, but with that, with that said, I, like like again, and I'm I'm going kind of quickly, so please feel free to jump in and 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 stop me if you think I'm missing yeah. anything. But Sansa and Arya have a conversation, and we get again just a real dichotomy, a real foil between these two characters. Yeah, Arya, this isn't important, but I love the. Uh, the setting of this scene, which is Nymeria has like rolled in mud and then yeah. rush it out and Nymeria won't let her. And I I think even Sansa makes a comment at some point that like the, you know, the, the master of animals or something that they have has made a comment that, uh, you know, animals take after their masters. <laughs> it's yeah. like, and sure enough. Um, but we get this really interesting foil and, and, and the most, I thought, I thought clear statement that was made about it is Arya says, why would I want to go in the queen's, you know, paddy wagon or whatever it is uh right. you know it has no windows and Arya goes on this huge expanse about like she's seen 30 types of flowers she's never seen before in her life so right. far she's in fact she even got, them gave her a rash yeah she got poison <laughs> ivy or something from one of the types of flowers but even that was fun and she didn't mind putting mud on it whereas Sansa is more than excited to, to get away from nature get into the sort of luxury that is the queen's yeah. traveling caravan and avoid windows at, at all costs. Yeah, I think that my favorite part in these, my favorite character beat for the two of them, is Sansa thinks about how horrible it is that Arya is willing to make friends with anyone, even poor people. Uh, so Arya has been out riding and hanging out with squires and grooms and serving girls, old men and naked children, rough spoken free riders of uncertain <laughs> birth. And like, I'm on Arya's side here. That sounds like so much more fun than like sitting with the queen. Although I will say in Sansa's defense, I do like to eat cakes. Um, Very fair. From this conversation between that Sansa has with Arya, she then goes and sees, kind of goes back to the group, if you will, and sees a bit of a commotion outside of the Queen's. And again, I'm not remembering the name of what you call these things, but the thing it's that it's a wagon, it's a carriage, giant carriage wagon, or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there's a bit of a commotion going on, and we meet yeah. three, Briefly, three before new characters. We, before we get to the new characters, I just want to mention, I said it earlier, we get a geographical location here. Uh, so Arya specifically says that she and Mike are going to spend the day looking for Rhaegar's rubies, which we've heard about before. Mm -hmm. So this is at a place that is now named the Ruby Ford, which is on the Trident. And if you pull up a map, the Trident is uh, three rivers that come together and combine as one hence the name, uh, going from west to east across, across the Riverlands. So we actually get an idea. They're, they're like halfway through the Riverlands at this point, and they're done with the north. They are almost there. You know, this is, this is getting close to the end of this trip, end of the journey. And we also hear a discussion about their experience riding through the Neck, which is this bog lands that is at the bottom of the north. That is the entryway from the south into the north. So I just wanted to mention that. Nice. But from this conversation, Sansa departs from Arya and kind of goes back to where everybody is. And there's a commotion and we get to meet three new characters standing outside of the Queen's wagon is what we come to find out is, I think it's two honor guards. It's, it's the head of the honor guard of the King's guard. Yes. Uh, and then the, me. one of one of Robert Baratheon's brothers. Yes. Uh, and then a third, very intimidating fellow. Yes. Uh, who really freaks the hell out of Sansa. And to be quite honest, me too. Yeah. So his name is Ilan Payne and he is the King's Justice. Do you know what the King's Justice is, Michael? I uh, I do. I made an educated guess and it is the, uh, it's the gallows man. It's, it's, yes, uh, it is. This is He's the headsman. The guy that's taken, taken heads. Um, 
I will say just just because it's it's worth mentioning. I think something that that and I left it out before, but I want to bring it up here because it shows up again. But for all of Sansa's sort of fairy tale dreaming of what it means to be a princess, she is still called out a little bit. Septim Mordain points out, you know, ladies don't feed their dogs under the table, right? Uh, and and so there is this sort of Sansa's own desire to have, you know, her way of doing things as well. She uses Lady her direwolf to kind of create a path so that she can get a better view of what's going on as she comes to meet these characters. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then there's there's a little bit of uh, commotion that that she causes a little bit. She kind of falls back at the look of uh, and again I already forgot his name, Sir Illin. Yes. Uh, and and is sort of caught by the Hound, uh, who is happens to be right behind her, and then that, that kind of freaks her out a little bit as well. And she's she's a little all topsy turvy, if you will. Yes. Uh, but with that said, there's also this this sort of lovely recovery that happens. She quickly is able to identify who these guardsmen are. She's mm -hmm. introduced to Sir El Illin, the 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 king's what did you call him head? Uh, the king's justice. Justice, you know, and she kind of pulls herself together. But there's this wonderful fairy tale moment where the queen says, "Joffrey, go stand by your woman," and Joffrey gallantly yeah. comes out and says, "Hey, you don't have to be afraid." I'm here for my for my lady. I'm here for you, Sansa. And and she then uh, I think it Cersei herself says, "Why don't you two take the day together?" Yeah. Uh, There's a great moment in here also where Sansa apologizes to Illyn Payne. So it's mm -hmm. it's not just that she recovers so well. It's she flips into like I think Septimordain would be proud. You mm -hmm. know, she would have seen the, the initial interaction and been cringing the whole time. You can't disrespect somebody like this. But Sansa flips into lady mode. She, her training kicks in and she is is picture perfect, polite to both Barristan and Renly first. And then she turns to Ilan and she says, I'm so sorry. Like, you are a knight in good standing. You are a member of the king's court. I was just afraid. Yeah. I'm a kid and I was afraid and I apologize. And I think that's a really great moment. Before and, we keep moving, what were your thoughts on these three people? You know, this is the first like major set of introductions we've gotten in a while. Did you get any initial impressions? Oh, I like Sir Illin a lot. I thought he was a really freaky character. I thought that there yeah. was something that really stands out about him. He wasn't following formal procedure. He wasn't, I think he wasn't on one knee when the queen came out or or something like that, whereas the, the guardsmen were. Um, I think that we don't get to spend a lot of time with any of these three. Sir yeah. Ilan really comes off as a very intimidating character. We learn that the last king, the Targaryen king, uh, had burned his tongue out. Uh, yes. Hence his silence and his muteness. He is definitely a crazily intimidating character. But the other ones really seemed exactly what I their their role would make them seem like. They looked very gallant. They are definitely like like clearly strong in what they do one is on the older side but still described as very strong the yes. robert's brother is much younger but still just as as gallant and fun to look at i well as robert used to be i think is the emphasis uh, <laughs> you know this is this is the closest thing you get to young robert i think you have this right. young guy who is strong and handsome and uh, has got beautiful armor and is really fascinating to Sansa in a way that she she was really disgusted by the fat old drunk king. So. Right, right. Uh, but I think, and again, keeping in mind that this whole chapter is from her perspective, I think we're getting a little bit of the the sort of starry eyed perspective on a lot yeah. of this. Uh, you know, I I think that she loves, like you were saying, we're getting closer to uh king's landing you know we're finally there in fact that's why they're here they're here to kind of go, be with them the rest of the time going back down to king's landing right uh and i think she's starting to get real star-eyed you know starry-eyed about like yeah. what she's seeing and getting really excited about it 
And I think that goes right into her her day as it starts with Joffrey. She, mm-hmm. It's just, she's so excited. He asks her, what do you want to do? And she says, if she thinks, I just want to be with you. Yeah. Uh, and then he says, why don't we go for a horse ride? Which he already said she hates to Arya, but is so excited to do now with Joffrey. Exactly. And, and that's what they do. They really start to have just a really fun day. Joffrey's kind of, kind of douchey uh but more of like bravado of a young man you know yeah, and she's into it and, and she loves it she's she hot he's fun he's fun to look at all of these things you can get away with a little douchiness when you're like that absolutely in fact they get lunch and in fact they drink at lunch uh she drinks more than she usually does and we find yeah. out that joffrey if joffrey really feels comfortable in his princehood he gets yeah. the tavern, you know, keepers to come bring them the food. They get, they really have whatever they want. Is that, is this that is such a tips? fun moment too, because I mean, Sansa doesn't say anything about it, but she, she clearly doesn't see any red flags in it. This is something impressive to her. And right. earlier in the chapter, you have that moment where she's like, why does Arya hang out with the poor people at all? And so you can see how this is such like a, a strict nobility view, a hierarchical view of things where, yeah, of course we can show up at these random people's home and make order them around and make them bring us lunch and wine. Yeah. Whereas you can imagine Arya would have been like, oh, people, let's get to know them as people. Right. And, uh, Sansa and certainly Joffrey have no interest in interacting with them as anything other than servants. And I think that we really see a really strong budding relationship between Joffrey and Sansa. Joffrey wants to be worshipped and or, or at least looked up to and seen as a man and, and and appreciated. And Sansa wants that. She wants she that's what she wants her husband to be. She wants her husband to be a beautiful prince charming and then king charming. Uh yeah. and and I think she she eats it up and and that he loves that she eats it up. And I think that's kind of almost almost what to keep using our word instigates the next moment. Yeah, they start to well, hear. Before we get to oh, that quickly, I just think there's a really funny moment here too that relates back to something we skimmed over last chapter. Uh, but Joffrey says, "You know, don't worry, I'll protect you." And he pulls out his sword, lion's tooth, and waves it around. And just last chapter, we had Rob pulling his sword. I'm going to go fight the Lannisters, and Roderick is like, "Dude, don't be an idiot." Like, there's nobody here. You're just going to end up stabbing me by accident. Stop being a little kid. You don't pull your sword unless you mean to use it. You know, it's like the the thing people always say about guns. You only point them at something you mean to shoot. And I think even even John said something similar to that to Arya uh, when giving her needle as well. I think that we're seeing that there are those that respect what this means and that there are those that just kind of brandish it around. Yeah. And so the Starks have these people telling them, hey, don't do that. And there's nobody with them here. But I have to wonder if there's anybody in Joffrey's life that has ever told him, don't draw your sword when you don't need to use it. Don't draw it to look impressive. You can imagine Tyrion saying that. You can imagine maybe Jamie saying that, but like Robert's probably not playing, paying yeah. enough attention. And like Sandra Clegane is, is there to follow orders, not give them. So I don't know if he has this sort of teacher in his life at all. I'm going to quickly go through what happens next, mostly yeah. because it's it's... I think that it's what happens more than how it happens that becomes really interesting and important here. But basically, as they're going on this this day together, Sansa and uh, and Joffrey, uh, they're now exploring what I'm going to refer to as Ruby Ridge, but whatever the Ruby, whatever Ruby place. Ford. Yeah, and uh, and they start to hear a strange noise. And Sansa, being Sansa, and sort of a little of her timidity and things like that, says, "Let's just leave. Let's leave it alone. I don't know what it is. It's it's weird. Let's go." And Joffrey says, don't worry, Every you, with me, you're safe about everything. Let's go explore. And they go and explore this noise. And what they find is they find Arya and uh, and Micah, Mitchell, um, they're, they're doing sword training. 
they're they're basically fighting with wooden wooden sticks and and hitting each other and it definitely Arya's losing uh in fact Sansa earlier in the chapter had made a comment that Arya seems to be covered in black and blue marks all the time and now we're starting to understand where those might have come from right uh and here comes the crown prince and uh and and Sansa and I think you this this is how my understanding of this scene basically Sansa's already talked about how she's drank more than she usually does and I think she even alludes to the fact that Joffrey's acting with even more bravado with wine kind of pumping through him and Joffrey comes upon this situation and I think Joffrey does what makes the most sense from from his point of view to himself and what I could understand too here is his betrothed sister out in the middle of nowhere with a nobody with the butcher's son and the butcher's son is whacking on her yeah with a sword fake sword yeah. uh and he says i'm here to stand up for my me and mine and he pulls out his sword and he begins to you know lightly taunt and torture this this poor child micah basically saying you know you're beating up basically those that are royalty uh or part of the royal party and you're going to now I'm now going to teach you a lesson. And Micah is there saying, no, she asked me to. No, it's not my fault. Uh, and Arya is on Micah's side. And Arya yeah. has no patience for, for Joffrey and actually grabs her fake sword and really bashes Joffrey on the head. She breaks it across the back of his head, yeah. And he's bloodied and everything. And Joffrey turns around enraged and goes towards Sansa. I'm sorry, goes towards Arya, at which point the dog whose name i can't pronounce namiria uh, leaps upon joffrey and brings him to the ground and and this sort of ends our 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 scene we yeah. we basically have this ending of a scene where what was a really pleasant day for sansa and joffrey and showing off now well in fact i left out probably the most important way that this ends uh but you end with a bloodied and beaten joffrey bloodied and beaten by a tiny girl when yeah. he was trying to teach a lesson to a boy and more than anything it ends with with sansa saying oh my god let's go let's get you help and him saying get away from me yeah that he is now filled with loathing towards anyone who is a part of this situation he's so uh, embarrassed yeah yeah and, and that's, that's how that i sense took of it shame too. coming back up again exactly and he really reacts so harshly to it i mean yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. You have Sansa screaming at everybody to stop through all of this. And one of the things she keeps repeating is you're spoiling it. You're spoiling it. Yeah. This isn't just stop. This is bad. It is my fairy tale day is getting destroyed. This was a song until now. Stop it. You're spoiling it. And I think that's so fascinating because this is the removal of those rose colored glasses of those, those princess fairy tales, mm -hmm. a, a small removal. I mean, this is, it's a fight between kids at the end of the day. Uh, but you know, Joffrey is, is swinging real steel at her sister here. He, Nymeria jumps in because he is potentially going to kill Arya, uh, in this rage that he has here. And what a shocking display from this guy that she's seen as her gallant prince, her chivalric knight, right? Up until this point, this is not something that they do in the stories. And, and then he hates her at the end of it. I mean, we don't know if that'll last past the emotion of this. But this is spoiling her perfect day. And so that's that's the place where I push back a little bit on your assessment is we have this view of her that if it were to stay static of her as the princess experiencing the princess's world and her life with the prince, that would be boring. And we've read that story a bunch of times. Mm -hmm. But here we have the princess being confronted with 
something harsher in the same way that Bran, who loved the stories of the Kingsguard, ran into one of them and was put into a coma and paralysis by it. Right. We have, you know, nothing's happened to Sansa and maybe nothing will, but we have somebody who loves the stories and the songs of the, the princesses and their prince and the people that they love. And instead she gets this version, which is totally different. I like that. It's uh, it definitely once again puts us in a position as readers, at least for me, desperate to know what the fallout's about to be. Yeah, this was not a nobody who got beaten up. This was the yeah. crown prince who already we know there's all this stuff happening with Lannisters and what's going on. So very interested to see how this how this plays out. And we've talked about that before. We had John saying, you know, bastard swords can't strike princes, and we had your observation that maybe Rob. Uh, wasn't being put into a place of live steel with the prince because maybe there would be consequences to hurting him even in practice. Right. And so now you have Arya and more so Arya's wolf, but the both of them caused some pretty direct damage to the royal person. And that is probably going to be frowned upon. Probably a no-no. What do you, what do you think is going to come from this? You know, I, I don't, I don't know, but to be quite honest, and I feel like this is me being stupid, but I, my feeling is like, well, it, Ned and Rob are friends. Yeah. Like it'll be smooth kids out. Be kids. Well, yeah, kids okay. will be kids. Is sort of my feeling. I, I I don't remember. I honestly don't remember this moment in the TV show at all. Mm-hmm. And then Good. I have this this we're getting this there <laughs> projection. You know, like like a few you know chapters late of whatever it might be in the show. But like I feel like things are kind of smooth eventually in King's Landing. So I don't I don't know. This okay. is much also more aggressive here than I remember it. And I don't remember it in the TV show, but I don't remember. I feel like if there was as much blood as being described here and such violence that I would. You probably would. It doesn't mean it didn't happen, but but it's just my my feeling. So this chapter ended and more my feeling was Sansa is going to be pouty more than any other enormity enormous okay. thing's gonna happen but well I'm we'll find around. out soon i, I want to put a, a coda on this chapter in terms of what i was just talking about with sansa and her stories because there's an interesting nugget in here for people who are rereading the books this isn't a real spoiler in terms of what comes in plot uh but sansa references a couple of stories that joffrey is reminding her in the middle of this chapter which i think are such a great little hint about what comes at the end of the chapter so she, Sansa thinks of this story of Prince Emon the Dragon Knight championing his queen's honor against evil slanders from Sir Morgul, who we don't know. We've never heard of, of any of these people. I think we've heard of uh, Prince Emon the Dragon Knight in Bran's chapter, but we don't know anything about any of them. But Sansa specifically thinks of this in comparison to Joffrey coming and saving her from the Hound and from Illin Payne, which is a nothing incident. She was under no threat. There was no risk to her or to mm. Lady. And Joffrey shows up and says, hey, everybody calm down. And that's his whole thing. And she sees this as this gallant, beautiful moment out of the stories. And the story of Prince Amon the Dragon Knight is he was accused of sleeping with the queen, his sister. By Sir oh, <laughs> so that's the slander that he was defending her against. And in response, he murders the guy. This is the story. He he challenges him to trial by combat and he wins and Sir, Sir Morgul dies. And it's not lost on me, as I hope it's not lost on you, that just a couple of chapters ago, we had somebody who found out that the queen was sleeping with her brother. And the response was to try and murder that person. And this is the the wonderful hero that Sansa is comparing Joffrey to. 
And so I just think that's worth noting because she has this sense of these tales. I mean, you can imagine the beautiful romantic song being played by the bard about the prince standing up for the honor of the queen and shouting down this evil man who is accusing her of things that definitely aren't true. And well, that was the song probably written by the prince and the queen afterwards, or at least by somebody they employed. And the reality is a lot darker and is potentially similar to something we're experiencing in real time. That's interesting. I like that. I hadn't I hadn't caught that at all. Well, I, you don't know the story yet. I mean, I don't think the story itself comes out for several books. So in that sense, this is a spoiler. But, you know, I, I feel comfortable sharing those things with you because it really gives such color to what it is we're reading here. I like that. I wanted to say I was going to try to call you out for using the word chivalric, which I don't think is a word. But then I looked it up. It is a word. <laughs> so I jinx on me. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. Stupid sounding word. So do you have anything else to add here? I think that's it. We once again are left with this cliffhanger of what's about to happen from all these yeah. things that have happened. Uh, and I just hope to spend more time with John and Tyrion, to be honest. I want to see that bromance bro grow. I appreciate bro that. Bread. So yeah, so that wraps us up here in this chapter. Next time we're going to do two chapters. We are doing Ned 3 and Bran 3. <gasps> Bran. Yeah, exciting. Spoilers. Do you think that means he wakes up? You know, I don't know. It's a fantasy book, so maybe we just spend time with him in a coma. You, like, yeah. I, it wouldn't surprise me if we just really get inside his head and maybe there's things happening there. So I, I guess I obviously we will hear from Bran's voice, but whether that means he wakes up or not, uh, I will. I'm excited to find out. So thanks, everybody. That's all for this episode. Next week, we'll be discussing A Game of Thrones, Ned 3 and Brand 3. If you enjoy our episodes, please help us out by subscribing and rating the podcast on whatever platform you listen to us. And go follow us on Twitter. Bros with Banners is the handle. Follow us, retweet us, any type of sharing, you know, recommendations to friends and word of mouth. Thanks, as always, for listening. Bye.